Welcome to I'll Be There For You, a podcast about pop culture and coping. I am your host slash producer slash snack mom, Lindsay Ennett. And on every episode, I've talked to a funny or interesting or otherwise rad person about a piece or two of pop culture that got them through a difficult time in their lives. Why am I doing this? There are already too many podcasts, too many pop culture podcasts I know, but I really love talking to people about the things they love and about the ways they practice caring for themselves and their communities when the world is literally, like really literally on fire. So my guest today is Molly Horan. Molly is adjunct professor teaching writing YA literature and writing for the web at SVA and NYU. Her writing on pop culture has been published on Jezebel, Refinery29, Electric Literature, the AV Club, and many other sites. We'll include some of those links in our show notes. Once she interviewed James Earl Jones and he asked if she was as nervous as she looked. She was. Please tell me more about talking to James Earl Jones. It was such a weird experience, um, but a good one. I had just moved to the city and I was applying to every freelance gig I possibly could. And Backstage Magazine were like, yeah, there's this you know, fundraiser and you can cover it. And Harry Belafonte is going to be there and James Earl Jones is going to be there and you can interview him. Yeah, I've never really interviewed anyone, like, except my family when I was a kid and I was trying to be a reporter with my Lisa Frank notebook. He was very nice. And, you know, I asked a few questions and he's just like, young lady, you look very scared. I'm like, I am. You're James Earl Jones. Yeah. You're Mufasa and Darth Vader. But he was very, he was very good. And he, you know, he's an older gentleman and, you know, was kind of having difficulty walking, but uh, very 100% there, like incredibly sharp. That is amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that. So there was a very specific topic you wanted to talk about. So um, do you mind telling us what that is? Yeah. So when I saw kind of the idea of your podcast, my mind jumped to the probably not quite year, the the couple of months I spent uh, watching the entirety of Mad Men on my cell phone. I did that in what I called and probably uh, not the best name, but the women's housing facility, which my sister said sounded like I was in jail. Um, I was not in jail. It's one of those places in New York that's kind of a holdover from the 60s and earlier, where it's a apartment type place, but only women can live there. Like a boarding house? Yeah, I get like they were more common. I always like reference um, the character, the main character in the bell jar lives in one again in like the 60s. Um, but this one still existed in the 2010s. And I went there because it's a really, really cheap room in the city and you can pay month by month. And there's no commitment. You know, you just make sure that you can pay the really cheap rent for this tiny room with a bed. And from the bed, for unknown reasons, there's also a sink in the room. And the bed is so close to that wall that you can lie in bed and wash your hands if that was something you were into. And that that is where I lived for a year after grad school. And it does have a, you know, 
cell-like quality to it. And I didn't really have any friends in the city yet. And I have always loved TV. And I've always said that I never really understood comfort food, but I do understand comfort TV. Um, But at that point, so many of my favorite shows are really tied to memories of, you know, my high school friends that I kind of lost contact with or different versions of myself that I, again, felt really disconnected from. And every time I started watching a new show, it would be like about a 20-something building this new friend group or making it. And it made me feel really anxious that I felt that I wasn't. And for some reason, Mad Men, I think because it was focused on a main character that before it emerged that Peggy was going to be a main character, but Don Draper, I felt very different from and disconnected from. And he, you know, in the words of that famous uh, reality show thing, he was not there to make friends. So I felt it was something I could really get into and not feel the pressure of my friendless situation. Take us, I I guess, to start putting this this all into context. Um, what brought you to New York in the first place and to the this, um, you know, your Catherine Hepburn and stage door living situation? Oh, and it was the the funniest thing about this place is, again, not only was it somewhere that only women could live, you could not have gentlemen callers up to your room. So there was a bunch of gentleman caller rooms on the first floor. Were they called gentleman caller rooms? I I could not tell you if that is something I read or if that is something that I coined. I really, I don't know which is which. I know that that is the only thing I called them. Um, I appreciate your commitment to the phrase gentleman caller. They were the only places that you could have guys, uh, you know, platonic, romantic, otherwise. And it was a long hallway and the rooms only had three walls. So you kind of felt as you were hanging out with, again, maybe a friend, maybe a date, like you were in the zoo because anyone who had to pass this hallway would watch you, again, just hanging out on a couch with a guy, but with not a fourth wall. I felt that that was an important visual. But yeah, I had moved to the city two years before to start grad school. I got my MFA in writing for children and young adults. At this point, I had gotten a fellowship at BuzzFeed. Um, So during the day, I was writing lists about the 90s. And yeah, just trying to... I tried some interesting... I went at one point, was like going on dating apps to try to again reach out to platonic friendships um met up with some twitter people in real life but just nothing it would be a couple years before like i clicked into a friend group i I really your story really resonates with me because i had a very similar experience when i first got out of college i moved to atlanta for magazine internship and you know you're immediately thrust into this new city where you don't know anyone and this new environment and it's far removed from whatever support network you had before and it's it's hard and it sucks and especially like in a city where there's no public transit and you just yeah, kind of be very isolating. I often refer to it as the summer I took up running because I just like needed to get myself out of the house on weekends. So I would go running in Piedmont Park, which got I felt isolated enough that I was like, 
I know what'll make me feel a bit better. Running. Sustained running. Um, yeah, I've, I've thought that running would make me feel better a bunch of times, but it just makes me feel worse. No, it's, I mean, it definitely works for lots of people. Because, yeah, no, I, I'm happy for those people. So talk to me a little bit more about your your path to, like, were you a fan of Mad Men before? No, I really, I started yeah. watching it again on my phone. I think I really do like Mad Men still a period piece. I like period pieces and I was, you know, hearing good things. And it was, I also think I sought it out because it was a version of New York, but it wasn't, again, it wasn't one of my favorite shows of all time is 30 Rock. And I found that that show did make me feel stressed out because that was the current New York and everyone was having a very exciting time. And I'm like, Oh God, I should be having a more exciting time in the city. But Mad Men, it's like, okay, this is, this is how it was. And this is just a view into what New York was. And I think it's gotten better. At least, you know, women are treated better in the workplace. Of course, this was pathetic, you know, a bit before it was revealed that maybe not. But yeah, I just I heard good things. And it was it definitely is engrossing. I think you're definitely and I also think that in all that is written about it that you know how well done it was and the great acting and the great writing. It can be really funny. It's not consistently funny. There are whole episode blocks where I don't think there's laugh line, but there. There are some really funny moments in Mad Men, and I appreciated that. I'm trying to think of a time that Mad Men was funny. I mean, yeah. it's it's all incredibly dark humor, right? So the thing yeah. that I am thinking about most clearly is the lawnmower. That's what I was thinking of, too. And of course, like, if that happened in real life, that's not funny at all. But because it's that fiction, and just the shock value. And then, of course, it highlights so well how what terrible people they all are because in discussions like oh you know now he's gonna be kind of lopsided so he won't get the job and maybe i'll get the jobs like this guy has been maimed i mean it's truly i mean the people on mad men are like collectively truly awful and except peggy my dear sweet peggy and joan i like joan and joan yes but what do you think it is about seeing what do you think it is that appeals us to getting sucked into the stories of like the characters are deeply unlikable? I mean, I like to think that it's because we're constantly searching for their redemption. I think more madmen than a lot of the other anti-hero shows that you want to see glimmers of good in Don Draper, right? And you do. And I don't know that the glimmers are good would be enough to redeem him if he was a real person, but they're definitely enough to endear this character to the audience. You know, it wouldn't, the moments that he completely breaks down wouldn't work if by that point we weren't rooting for him at some level, even though he's this terrible cheat who cheats on his wives and you know messes with his co-workers and likes his kids but isn't a good father and tolerates his kids yeah tolerates his kids well likes likes them more when they can you know express love for him but yeah and even the more I mean, I thought it was kind of wild that one of the least likable characters they even tried to redeem in the end with Pete being like, no, I will 
you know, I'll, I'll stop cheating on my wife and maybe we'll, I like the idea that he believed that a location also would change him. Like there'd be somewhere where there weren't other women. I mean, it's, it's funny because it, you know, I'd, I'd forgotten until we were talking about this, that Mad Men's peak was really during this kind of first or I guess second really breath of prestige television and all of these shows were obsessed with anti-heroes the wire and breaking bad with Walter White and and Mad Men it was all like a lot of the people on our TVs were pretty unlikable and yet people really liked them uh, yeah. breaking bad i have never watched i just i but i feel like i've gotten the gist and I'll meet people and be like, yeah, Walter White is awesome. I'm like, but the violent drug deal? Like, I don't think so. And there's like a gendering to it, yeah. too. Is you had all these people who loved Walter White, who was complicated but not a great dude. And then would be like, oh, but Skylar's such a bitch. Oh, I hate Skylar. And like his wife and right. like female antiheroes don't get nearly the same amount of love although i do not that they were anti-heroes but i appreciated that uh, with big little lies that so many of those characters you know could be judged as deeply deeply unlikable and everyone who watched it just loved all of them yeah i think for sure that's changed a lot even in like the past five years of tv and even with kind of more expansive genres of prestige television and with streaming allowing kind of more different stories to be told but even on like orange is the new black you had before it just got to be too much piper um you had i I think a lot more complicated and on occasion anti-hero-y female characters that like people really connected with and and again i think that's also true with big little eyes yeah i mean orange and the black was interesting because you had a couple characters that had not a kind of half-hearted you know redemption for the audience but general redemption you know pensatunky was a terrible terrible person and then she still definitely had issues but she also you know kind of acknowledged the bad things she did and said now i have a you know now I don't think in that way. And I think that doesn't happen a ton on TV shows. It doesn't. And I think that was a redemption arc that I think, you know, that's a really cool redemption arc to, to see. But, um, bringing it back to Mad Men and, and I, I'm really interested in what you had to say about, you know, seeing a New York show, but that didn't reflect the current New York, the one you were living in. Do you think you, before you moved there and, uh, before you were in the living situation where you were watching Mad Men, what was kind of your projection of New York? Do you do you think you engaged in that I, TV and film romanticize it a little bit? Um, the only thing I really I didn't have any big dreams kind of growing up of of New York, moving to New York. Um, there's a kind of, you know, family story. Uh, I'm from Connecticut. So, you know, it was not hard to get to New York. And as a kid, my parents brought my sister and I to see um, the Rockettes for Christmas one year. And, you know, my parents just talk about how genuinely horrified I was by everything that was New York City. 
Um, I was just kind of, you know, angry at my parents, like, why have you brought us to this loud, crowded place? This is terrible. We should go home right away. (laughs) Um, And I do. I am not a big, you know, uh, noise person or crowd person. Um, I think the reason that the idea of New York even took hold in college was I am just a terrible driver. I should not be behind <laughs> a wheel and I haven't since I was 19 and I failed my driver's test like three times. And some, I don't remember who the first adult in my life was like, you have to live somewhere where there's public transportation. I'm like, oh, okay. New York it is, I guess. But then as soon as I moved here, I completely fell in love with it. And now I don't want to live anywhere else. But I really... The only pop culture way that I romanticized it, which is such a cliched, um, you know, suburban girl way to do it, was Rent. Uh, I was a musical theater kid. I loved Rent. I'm like, you know, so every depiction, I'm like, yes, this is New York. Just a bunch of artists, you know, singing on the street and sticking it to the man and, you know, going to the live cafe and not paying. (laughs) So that... That was my um, pop culture idea of New York before I got here. Molly, Molly, (laughs) I wish you could see my face right now. I think there's a strain of this. And I think with with Rent specifically, because I was definitely in the same camp as you of having this romanticized vision of New York because of when Rent came into my life. Like I was going to go to NYU, I was going to go to Tisch, I was going to, you know, be a regular at the New York and Poets Cafe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that had a lot to do with like Rent and Deaf Poetry Jam coming into my life at around the same time. But I think there's, there, I think there's still this like transformative quality with Rent with a certain type of small town or suburban kid, especially in the Midwest and especially in the South, but like you're from Connecticut and it's, it's the same thing like with big theater kid energy and grand ambitions and this very idealized and then you get older and people you know actually move to New York and you realize oh it's nothing like this it's you couldn't get away with not paying your rent like I watch the movie now or I watch clips from it and I'm like how and I all I can think of is like how much that fucking loft that they live in oh in my god it's so big it's, it's so big, big. That loft would cost six grand a month now. And I always, this is, I mean, I still love Rent. I I always say it is a Christmas movie, so I watch it Christmas. Um, You're right. But this part still bothers me. And it's what really, really bothered me about um, La La Land was, you know, uh, Mark quitting the job. He's like, I have to make my own art. It's like, but you, you can do both. Like if you have a gig where you can kind of be creative and that's your paid gig, that's really good. Like you do not have to be, and most people cannot be, especially starting out, a full-time creative vision artist. You get your side gigs, you get your side hustles, and you make your film on the other hours. That that it had to be this big thing, in which I completely bought into as a teenager. It's like, yes, he's going to make his own film, so he has to quit his job. It's like, no, that's how you end up, you know, starving, freezing in your loft. Right. I mean, I just think, and I think we're seeing it now with 
uh, with groups like study hall and you know the like IWW freelancers union where you see more of an effort for artists and writers especially those who freelance full time are being more transparent and having these big important conversations about like I am able to do this writing work that I'm passionate about because I also have a full-time job or because I have a spouse that supports me or because I am able to make a living through these other things. And like, you're absolutely right that part of both the romantic charm and the thing you look back on as kind of dangerous about Rent is that it ignores that that kind of creative freedom either comes with immense recklessness or immense privilege. Yeah, I mean, and- it's weird that the people depicted as having only characters depicting as having jobs, like traditional jobs during it as uh, Joanne as a lawyer. So just coming, you know, from that. And then Mimi, who is a little slut shamed for being a stripper. But she has a steady income. Yeah, she has income, right. Yeah, I mean, it's, and I wonder if that like shaped anyone's perception of sex work. Yeah. So that, I mean, that's, that's, I, we don't have time to, to get into all that, but it's, you know, it's so you're in New York taking the time and, and falling into this very specific time and place vision of New York and Mad Men. Walk me through what a typical in, in that space with the, the small bed and the sink like a typical Mad Men viewing night looks like for you, like what's going through, what's going through your mind and like what about the show is like pulling you in at, at that point? How are you, how are you relating to it? I mean, I do think that a big part of it was that I wasn't really relating to it in a way. It just seemed, um, I mean, I think both because I was at Buzzfeed and because this has always been a huge thing with, my family, not that this is at y'all unique, but it was something that we were really into is you see a TV show, a movie, and you know, you're not 10 minutes in and you're signing who's what character, right? Oh, you know, I'm such this character. I'm, you know, they're such this character. And that was all what BuzzFeed's quizzes were. And it was nice to just watch and be like, I am no one. And and not only that, these are not people I know. These are not characters that are reflecting anything I don't know, you know, terrible cheaters. And I don't, you know, I hadn't faced anything like the sexism that Peggy was facing. And it just seemed so far away. And that is exactly what I wanted at that moment. And it's it's nice to experience a show and get absorbed into it and not seek the relatability. Yeah. Like it can just be pure fantasy. Yeah, that was really nice, especially again, my other New York City show at that time was 30 Rock. And like every single millennial woman who watched that show, I'm like, yes, I I will be Tina Fey someday. And this is great. You know, we're, I am awkward too, but someday we'll have a great writing creative job. And again, it was fun to have that point of relation, but also be like, oh God, that's a that's a lot of pressure to want to aspire to that. And Mad Men was just no pressure. It was just little, little history lessons. And, you know, me texting my parents and being like, hey, was the 60s really like this? this 
And and what did they say? Were the 60s really like this? Well, I mean, it was interesting by, you know, somehow did the years and the math. And my mother is exactly the same age as Sally's character. So, mm. of course, often I'd ask her questions. She's like, well, notice how Sally doesn't know anything that's going on because she's seven. So also I was seven. But there were once, you know, you kind of get to the older years, there'll be, you know, some kind of historical event that they worked in and my mother would remember that or you know she's really like yes I had that dress (laughs) so there's that those points but I couldn't really be like is this what you know did they really day drink in the office like I don't know I I was in second grade it's funny that you mentioned 30 Rock as, as kind of the the other side of that that poll is I think in I think you're right in terms of the relatability and if you're for a lot of women who went into or wanted to go into creative fields like around that time you either identified with or wanted to identify with Liz Lemon and yeah she but I mean that character is portrayed as a mess but like an incredibly successful mess which is even better right it's not that she has to stop being messy it's that that can be contained within this incredibly successful career woman the one thing, I mean, I think this is an age thing, too, because I started watching 30 Rock in my late teens, early 20s, is the whole, mm-hmm. like, having it all thing didn't resonate with me. I'm like, but she's got the career. She's good. You know, she's got she's got a best friend and a mentor friend, and she runs her own show. What is she trying to chase after more for? It's such a both a cliche and such a nebulous and subjective thing like this idea of having it all. And it's probably funny to, you know, prop up Mad Men and 30 Rock against each other and in thinking about like what having it all meant then and now and in these two very different, you know, depictions of high powered New York career people. Well, I feel like I hadn't seen it de- depicted or referenced that explicitly, the woman having it all storyline, until really bizarrely, and I laughed out loud, even though it was not a funny moment. Um, but have you heard of the new Netflix show, The Witcher? I have I have heard of The Witcher, and that song has been in my head yes, it is for beautiful. the past six weeks. But the, you know, so high fantasy show, not necessarily a show where you think that you know, the quote unquote mommy wars are gonna pop up. Um, but there is a moment where a character is, you know, she's a powerful, you know, career woman sorcerer, but also wants a kid and is in the middle of this magical battle. And someone asks her what she wants and she just screams everything. And I laughed because it is, you know, it was Liz Levin saying, why can't I have it all? Except, you know, she was fighting some kind of magical force and had runes written over her. And it's like, wow, women really can't escape this. <laughs> That's wild. I never would have expected that. I mean, I know high fantasy, like the way um, issues surrounding gender come up in high fantasy is, is tends to be very different. So it's, it's wild to think of that showing up in a show like The Witcher. Well, I think it is because you don't normally you definitely get powerful uh, women characters and like both you know literally wielding magical power and stuff like that but in this show more than ones that I've seen her magic is like she's shown as running a business at some point and earning money and she there are you know career markers it is shown 
she is in a career. So just the fact that that exists allows the idea, I think, of balancing career with motherhood to exist in this fantasy world. So kind of looking back on on all of this, and, and just for clarification, was this when Mad Men was airing like in its original run? So I want to say that all but one season, I watched the final season in real time. Um, and that was mostly I would sometimes go home to my parents' house and I would like watch on Sunday night when it came out. But when I was watching it in New York again in the tiny room on the bed, it was all it was all out and bingeable. Like I was just watching one after the other after the other. So, you know, I was watching it whenever the second to last season was already available to stream. Got it. I should have a really I should have a better idea of when this was because of just the year it was in my life. So I want to say like 2013. Yeah, I think it would have been 2013. What was it like for you when the show, like, take us to, through what you were kind of, where you were at when the when the show was wrapping up? I, I'd, I'd moved out and had moved into another, the, the 92nd Street Y, so a different, a different room, slightly bigger, uh, but still hadn't really landed in my first full-time job yet. I will say that what is weird, I am the kind of person that I watch shows that I like over and over and over again. Like when people are like, yeah, I think I'm going to do a rewatch of this, you know, my favorite show. I'm like, oh, you're on your first rewatch? That's crazy. I mean, there, there are episodes of 30 Rock and Buffy and so many others that I have just seen, you know, 10, 11 times. And I haven't rewatched any Mad Men ever. I have only seen every episode of Mad Men once, which is very, very weird for me. So I think mm-hmm. I have made the conscious choice to keep it where it was, that it was helpful to me, but I don't necessarily want to go back mentally to where I was when I was watching it. And why do you think that is? Why do you want to keep it where it was? Uh, because it was, you know, I, I enjoyed watching it at that time. Um, and it was helpful to me, but it was also not, you know, it was a show that was very much tied up to a sense of loneliness. And I don't think I necessarily want to remember that as well as I think I would if I rewatched it. So what is your, what is your life in New York look like now? And better. (laughs) So yeah, with that in mind, have you have you found your your that your taste in TV and entertainment has has changed with that? Um, I mean, so I'd say about a year and a half after I moved out of the women's housing facility, uh, I got a internship at a site called Mashable, and that is where I met. Um, my kind of group of friends that I still have to this day. That summer is also when I moved in with someone that I kind of knew from high school, um, who very quickly became my best friend. And we are both very, very into TV. Um, That is, we just watch TV together all the time. He recently, um, we lived together for about five years. And then this summer, he moved to New Jersey with his boyfriend, and I still go over there every Friday night and we watch TV for a couple hours, whatever we oh catch up with. Over the week. TV and the core group of friends, especially um, when we first were at Mashable. And again, we were 
younger and pretty broke. And so normally I would just invite them over and we'd watch, you know, movies around a laptop. We didn't even have a TV. So uh, TV has become a communal experience again. And that's been really important, you know, watching Game of Thrones with a bunch of my roommates or, um, you know, watching try to think the last thing watching grace and frankie with my friend which is like this is a show about friends and watching it with friends so uh tv being a, a communal thing is a lot better than and even now especially often i'll find a favorite show and i'll say oh i know that i re i want to rewatch it with this specific person which again because I like watching shows over and over and over again, that doesn't bother me. I'll, I'll rewatch it and see their reaction. I love that. I love TV as, as a communal activity. And I, I think this is actually a great note to kind of start wrapping things up on. So one thing that I like to ask everyone who comes on the show is what is something outside of pop culture that you do to practice self or community care? Oh man, outside of pop culture. <laughs> it's so many things um i recently and well all right i will explain this has a pop culture tie-in but it's not really um so i recently started rock climbing and the pop culture tie-in is after i binge or start watching a really action-based show I get the feeling that i'm like wow i should move better and this can be traced back to Years and years and years ago, when I watched Teen Wolf, that's when I started doing parkour. And Wait, what? Yeah, I just, uh, you know, I see these people moving. I'm like, wow, that looks cool. I want to move in weird ways. Um, how do you just, like? How do you get into parkour? Like, what are the- city, there are classes? There's classes for everything. Cool. You know, I one of my favorite movies is The Karate Kid, and when I started rewatching that in college, I started taking martial arts. And so rock climbing was caused by watching The Witcher. And I was like, I'm either going to start taking sword fighting or rock climbing, but there's a rock climbing gym near where I live. So now I rock climb. Cool. (laughs) And I'm really bad at it, but it's a lot of fun. I I don't like going up that high, but I'm getting higher and I don't have a lot of arm strength, but that's building. So it'll be a while before I can climb a lot of rocks, but now I can climb a couple of rocks. That is awesome. Anyway, Molly Horan, thank you so much for being one of our first guests of I'll Be There For You Season 2. Do you have anything coming up that you would like to plug and where can people find you online? Um, People can find me online at Twitter um, at Molly underscore Horan. And as for things coming up for me, I don't I hope things will be, but I don't have necessarily anything specifically uh, in the queue, except if anyone's in Colorado, I'm going to a playwriting retreat where we will be doing a reading, but I've been told that the uh, somewhat lonesome town only has 500 people. So statistically, you probably won't be there. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds like a super interesting time and and i hope all goes well with that yeah thank you thank you for having me thank you so much for coming on the show molly haran thank you so much this has been another episode of i'll be there for you 
We release new episodes every other Sunday to help you defeat those Sunday scaries. You can find the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you like to listen to podcasts. If you would like to be a guest, Molly emailed me after seeing a post about the show in a Facebook group for another podcast that we both enjoy. Shout out to Nancy. Um, that like, so we are always, always looking for new guests. So just email, I'll be there for you pod at gmail.com. And you can have a lovely conversation like this one. Thanks for listening. Take care, everybody.